This is not the media. This is hell. The tyranny of single-family living has reigned for far too long. Look, I get it. Home can be a lonely place, and I don't mean only while in quarantine during a pandemic. It wasn't that long ago that we lived communally together, collectively in a shared living experience. In fact, everything started changing toward single-family living only about a hundred years ago. Prior to that, living alone was stigmatized and seen as selfish. So much of that long history of rugged individualism in the United States up until recently, we put that individualism aside for what's best for the community at large. So screw that whole idea of rugged individualism in our past history. Sure, that collective living and shared experience continued into the latter part of the 20th century, with children not being raised by only their parents, but by everyone on the block. But with neoliberalism and the glorification of the individual, all notions of working together have faded, and all we are left with is ourselves alone, on our own, isolated with our own within our own homes, now becoming not only places for family life, but work as well. For many, the changes in the economy have also meant living with parents longer, an increase in multi-generational living and a reconsideration of what our homes are, what they should be, and what they can be. You'll never look at your home the same after we speak with today's guest, writer and urban policy specialist Diana Lind, author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Diana is the executive director of the Arts and Business Council for Greater Philadelphia and the Housing Fellow at the global nonprofit New Cities. Find out more about Diana at dianalind.com and you can follow Diana on Twitter at Diana M. Lind. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth live stream podcast radio show host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you this morning? Doing well, Chuck. How are you? Good, good. How was your uh, commute up here? Was it a mess in, uh, with this crappy weather? Uh, not too bad, actually. Yeah. I mean, after rush hour, so it's, it's all right. It's always better when it's after rush hour. Uh, also, Jess, could you please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our site... This is hell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answers to this week's question from hell. At, uh, again, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at this is hell.com, alex at this is hell.com. But you have to send your response by the end of show Thursday following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. We will be announcing this week's winner of the new gray on black this is hell t-shirt jess will be telling us how you are answering this week's question mail following our guest again email us your answers to chuck at this is hell.com alex at this is hell.com send them via facebook message or tweet them to us at your convenience but you gotta do it before the end of the show on thursday manufacturing descent since 1996 this is hell look we all knew amy coney barrett was going to be the next supreme court justice we all knew senator cory booker asking republicans to consider a quote revival of civil grace as he put it that wasn't going to happen either 
What a dope. We all knew that pointing out the hypocrisy of the Republican Party and not allowing President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland would have no effect on their decision to rush through Barrett's nomination. We all knew she would be evasive and obfuscating and that she would be so assured of getting the nomination that she didn't even have to bring notes. All she had in front of her was a blank notepad as a prop, which she proudly smiled about when asked what she had in front of her. The Republican senator who asked her found it very impressive that she could answer questions so well without notes. But when you think about it, if you're not going to answer a question like, do you accept the science showing that we are experiencing climate change? To avoid answering a question, you, you really don't need notes. But a blank notepad does come in handy while you're trying to not answer a question because it gives you the blank void that will inspire your response, a response which is of itself nothing more than a blank void, an abyss of nothingness. We all knew there would be a Supreme Court Justice uh, Coney Barrett. It was inevitable. The Republican argument that you cannot have a Supreme Court Justice nominated in an election year was always a lie, and the Republicans have no value but winning, and that's not good for democracy because the Republicans put winning ahead of democracy, as we discussed with Emma Roller on yesterday's show when we talked about the real reason Trump won in 2016. And no, Trump wasn't elected just because backward Hicks voted him. It was due to voter suppression in cities targeting people of color. Now, why Democrats and the party leaders want to point to Appalachians voting against their own self-interest because they're so stupid, instead of, say, doing everything they can to end the Electoral College and voter suppression, the two reasons Trump is president is beyond me. I can only speculate, and to be honest, that speculation gets pretty scary, and thoughts of the Democratic Party not really wanting to win for whatever reason. And it looks like the Democrats will not be winning many elections into the very near future. Uh, yesterday morning, when we were speaking with Milwaukee writer Emma Roller on how the Koch family and their American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, had effectively turned Wisconsin into a state that, you know, it didn't really tend to democracy as much as it institutionalized minority Republican control of the government. Emma concluded our conversation saying she was concerned about the state assembly and senate as well as the state supreme court to institute whatever voting laws they wanted, laws that would give Republicans an unfair advantage in all of the upcoming elections. <clears throat> all Wisconsin had left in stopping the vote from becoming patently unfair was their Democratic governor. Well, now they don't have that. As the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported yesterday evening, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Wisconsin's voting laws Monday, rejecting an effort to require the counting of absentee ballots that are sent back to election officials on or just before Election Day. The court's 5-3 ruling means that absentee ballots will be counted only if they are in the hands of municipal clerks by the time polls close on November 3rd. The justices determined the courts shouldn't be the ones to decide the election rules amid the coronavirus pandemic that is surging in Wisconsin and across the world. All of that might sound like minutia to you until you read the concurring opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote, The Constitution provides that state legislatures, not federal judges, not state judges, not state governors, not other state officials, bear primary responsibility for setting election rules. That's right. The decision made it so nobody can make election laws except for state legislatures. 
the same state legislatures the Koch family and their ALEC project have been targeting for decades. The same state legislatures that everybody ignores because, really, what power do they have? Well, now they have a lot of power, and as they are controlled by Koch money and the ALEC program will write their legislation, their laws for them, the Kochs have effectively taken over voting laws in the United States. This means more and more votes will be suppressed, more and more people of color will be disenfranchised, more and more urban areas will lose political power, and American apartheid will be instituted with Republican minority rule, no matter what the voters really want. Just like with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, we all knew this was going to happen. Back in the aughts, progressives were warning that if voters didn't pay attention to their state Senate and House elections, Koch's far-right plan to take over the electoral process to benefit their fossil fuel empire would come to fruition. And it has. They knew the only way they could get or keep extracting and burning more and more fossil fuels as climate change kept getting worse and worse, including fracking natural gas and extracting tar sands oil, the most destructive extractive practice yet, they knew the only way they could get the public to go along with their destruction of the planet for their profit was to change the rules and take that power that votes still have whatever power votes still have away from the people. Now, it's just a matter of figuring out what we know will happen next, just like we knew Barrett would be a Supreme Court justice, and we knew the Kochs would finally change voting rules so millions will be disenfranchised, just like we knew that the attack on the Minneapolis police precinct and the headquarters during the protests following the police killing of George Floyd did not sound or look like the actions of Black Lives Matter protesters, just like we knew the burning of the auto zone in Minneapolis, the one big fire that they kept showing on TV, didn't sound or look like the actions of BLM. And both turned out to be done not by anarchists, as the right Fox News and Trump claim, but by far-right extremists who are trying to start a racialized civil war in the United States as members of the Boogaloo Boys have been arrested for both crimes. And what we know will happen next is a very frightening prospect. Sure, people like Emma Roller still have hope, as she said at the end of our talk yesterday on Wisconsin's elections, that, that hope that the people, that democracy will rise up against this undemocratic process. But hope will not prepare us for what's likely to happen next. What we all know deep down likely will happen next, no matter how much we do not want to admit it. I know many Democrats may have hope, may have had hope last week when it was reported that Democrats have been registering young voters at five to six times the rate as Republicans have in many key states in the election. Then it came out yesterday that in many of those states, overall, Republicans are registering new, va- new voters at two to three times the pace of Democrats. Unbeknownst to many Democrats who loathe Trump and voted Biden because they thought he had the best shot at beating Trump. You know, that same feeling they had about voting Hillary instead of Bernie because they knew that Hillary would beat Trump. Republicans have co-opted Bernie's door-knocking campaign of enthusiastic supporters talking directly to the people in an attempt to turn out the vote of those who are tired, sick and tired of neoliberalism. So, brace yourself, prepare yourself mentally and spiritually. Sadly and frighteningly, we know what will happen next, next Tuesday, because this is hell.
Coming up, the tyranny of single-family living must end. Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your answer in by the end of the show on Thursday, as we will be announcing this week's winner to the question from hell, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. It didn't used to be this way. We didn't used to all live our separate lives sequestered away on our own domiciles, left to our own individual devices, left to fend for ourselves in a mad competition with everyone else for, well, everything else. No, we used to have a much more shared living experience, and by the looks of it, this individualized single-family living isn't making us all that happy. In fact, we're pretty damn lonely. Here to help us rethink our home and to consider other ways of living, writer and urban policy specialist Diana Lind is author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Welcome to This is Hell, Diana. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You can find out more about Diana at dianalind.com. You can follow Diana on Twitter at Diana M. Lind. You write that before becoming a mom, I spent little time at home. I was always working, going out to dinner, hitting the gym, discovering new neighborhoods, spending evenings at cultural venues. But when my first son was born just in time for winter in Philadelphia, that all changed. Now with a beautiful baby who needed constant feeding, diapering, and attention, I spent a lot of time in our row house. Uh, Instead of uh, exploring the city, I explored my own mind and my home before long i felt uncharacteristically bored isolated even trapped and now we have a pandemic where you are supposed to spend as much time at home as possible without contact with other human beings so you were feeling isolated and bored and trapped before the pandemic how are you feeling now <laughs> um well, I think I've I've gotten a little bit adjusted uh, to that, but it's funny how um, being on maternity leave is a little bit like being in quarantine. Um, and I, I, you know, that experience was for me the first time where I realized just how um, being in your sort of own home um, all the time really can leave you feeling very isolated um, from people who are in your community, and it's not so easy. Um, to kind of make those sorts of social ties and connections that might have been um, much easier in the past with more communal styles of living and community um, than we have today. So, you know, I definitely think that for many people right now, they're realizing um, how interdependent that we are on our family members, on um, our friends, and how um, insufficient in many ways sort of just being a, you know, an isolated um, single person or couple or family can be in times like this. You write that I drew a clear connection between the loneliness I experienced and the amount of time I spent at home. Just as the virus came to the United States back in late January, CBS Market Watch ran a report headlined two years after hiring a minister of loneliness, people in the UK are still lonely. The story states two years have passed since the UK announced a buzzy and shocking headline-making position. The minister of loneliness, an appointment born from a 2017 report that said 9 million people in the UK of the UK's 67 million people feel lonely 
lonely some or all of the time. During the pandemic, suicides have increased dramatically, and many blame sheltering in place and quarantine protocols, including the closing of commercial spaces like bars and restaurants, you know, where you could maybe get rid of that depression, you could get rid of that loneliness, and you could avoid potentially considering suicide. To you, what explains why we are having such a problem with loneliness during the pandemic when we have made our lives so lonely for decades prior to the pandemic already. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's just taken it to that even more extreme place. Um, So, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, many of us did spend a lot of time at home. And, you know, there's, it's, you know, there's not necessarily a, um, a causation that, you know, people who live alone are necessarily more lonely. Um, I, I do think, though, that um, people living in communities where they don't have um, regular access and social interaction and don't really have the kind of like mixed use communities that we used to have um, where, you know, you weren't only surrounded by homes, but you were surrounded by commercial spaces, by cultural spaces, by the types of social infrastructure like, you know, libraries or daycares, that sort of thing. That's really sort of over time become zoned out of many of our communities. And instead, many of our neighborhoods are really strictly residential. And so, you know, if you're not in someone else's home, um, if you're, if all you are surrounded by are homes rather than these kinds of places where you could feed off of each other's energy, um, I think that really contributes to loneliness. And I think that, you know, people talk about loneliness sort of only within the context of say depression or, you know, in the worst case scenario, suicide, but there have been a lot of studies showing that loneliness can really affect a lot of other things. It can lead to worse health outcomes in general. Um, And there was even a study showing that it's as bad for you as smoking. So sort of in the same way that we think of smoking being something that is, you know, not only going to be bad for your lungs, but a host of other factors in your body, um, you know, loneliness can contribute to all these sorts of things. So I think that the pandemic has really kind of just um, exacerbated a situation that many people felt beforehand um, by really showing how um, how isolated we are within our homes and how how kind of there could be so many other ways in which we could be connecting pe- with people um, just by virtue of having, say, you know, not our own isolated backyards, but shared spaces like parks, you know, for example, right now are places where people can have that sort of social interaction. Um, but we've really sort of instead had a situation where everyone has their own home and their own sort of backyard and, and other amenities. What do you th- what do you think the impact of that loneliness, or more importantly, that isolation, what do you think that impact is on our politics. I know. I don't know if I uh, caught that in your book or not. But to what what extent do you think that might affect our politics? Sure. I mean, I think that there's there's been a lot of um, research into these ideas of common spaces allowing people to cross all sorts of divides. So political divides, racial divides, um, all you know, class divides. Um, that these kinds of um, common spaces like, you know, parks, libraries, um, and other sort of social infrastructure, that these are the types of places where you're able to interact with people. When you're, you know, um, in neighborhoods that are um, really defined by 
um, their residential character and uh, and tend to be exclusive uh, of people who you know come from different backgrounds or other classes and so on. Um, that can I think really uh, tend to isolate people into um, neighborhoods where you're surrounded by people who you know have the same politics as you only. Um, and so. I think that you know the way that we devise our communities and the way that we um, contribute to shared spaces more generally, whether that's you know having more shared living options or having um, just more shared outdoor spaces or social infrastructure and so on, that really I think can contribute to people being able to interact with people who are really different than them um, in ways in which they wouldn't necessarily in a in a sort of segregated neighborhood. So has housing then led to the political divisiveness that we are experiencing? How how has that contributed to, how does the inequality that is within the housing market, how has that contributed, do you think, to the political divisiveness that we're experiencing today? Well, I think that it contributes to the divisiveness by the fact that, you know, not everyone is being, is able to access the quote unquote American dream. Um, so when you have, uh, you know, decreasing home ownership rates um, and an increasing population, you have a lot of people, particularly young people and people of color who have been really locked out of the home ownership system in this country. And so, um, you know, you have a lot of young people in particular who are really burdened by debt. Um, and are um, not able to purchase that new home. You've had um, communities that historically have been redlined and um, uh, where people of color have not had the same access to home ownership and therefore don't have the generational wealth that um, you know, comparable white communities would have. Um, then you end up with a lot of people who are not seeing, you know, housing in the same way that perhaps, say, an older, whiter population that is, you know, a, a much more likely to be homeowners um, would see um, politics these days. So I think that the um, the ways in which homeownership really actually divides the country into haves and have-nots. Um, really contributes to the way that people see um, our overall economy. And, and we've really not created many other options for people to build wealth in this country. You know, it's very interesting right now that we're, you know, in this um, economy that's doing terribly, and yet the housing market is on fire because we've allowed, you know, we've created very low um, interest rates and really kind of continued to mobilize the housing industry as, this, you know, uh, you know, the the greatest um, source of wealth creation in our country, and we've not really thought about, well, what, how do we create wealth for people who aren't able to um, buy into that system, especially right now when they might not have um, the kind of job stability to um, to pay for a mortgage or may not have the funds. Um, to put down a, a down payment. So I think that the ways in which people can access home ownership really um, contributes to how people view politics. And then there's, you know, as I was just discussing before, the whole other element of how we're sort of spatially segregated by, um, uh, by neighborhoods that are, um, 
you know, really focused on residential areas and not as mixed use and therefore as mixed income um, as, as you might find otherwise. There was recently an article at Forbes about Housing Bubble 2.0 and how a columnist for them, a senior editor by the name of Michael Colombo, I think it was, he was saying that uh, this is inevitable. There is going to be another housing bubble burst that's going to happen, and it might happen during the pandemic. It might even happen due to the recession that's happening during the pandemic. How does your relationship or your view of your home change when it is subject to laws, regulations, a market that continually makes bubbles and busts within the housing market? How does that change the way that you view your home? Well, I think that a lot of people are very focused on property values and, you know, and it makes perfect sense if that is, you know, your greatest asset, you're going to be very focused on ensuring that it maintains its value. The problem is that that results in, you know, a lot of sort of nimbyism or back, not in my backyard kind of behavior where people are, um, will, you know, neighborhoods will fight having affordable housing built in their neighborhoods, will fight having um, zoning changes that would enable more dense housing or other types of housing options. Um, And so, you know, if you have people who are really focused on um, ensuring that property values continue to rise also, that also can end up with, you know, these neighborhoods displacing people who have you know, lived in the neighborhood for a very long time, but can no longer afford it um, after a couple of you know years or decades and so on. So it's it's really problematic that you know we have housing as this um, primary wealth creation mode for the U.S. and it, but it's also you know the place where people live and it's their communities, it's their schools and so on, um, and they're all kind of mixed together. Plus, there's of course a lot of outside investors who are buying up um, single family homes and um, other residential properties and have a very different, you know, um, perspective on, uh, on the housing stock and so on. So it's all mixed together. um, And, uh, and unfortunately uh, a lot of people, you know, I, I, I think that we will have to see at some point this, current bubble burst at some point. Um, and it probably will have to do with the fact that so many people right now are not able to make rent. And, um, and I think that's going to be an increasing problem unless we have, um, you know, federal funding and, and continued eviction moratoria that will enable people to, um, to stay in their homes until this pandemic passes. Um, so I think it, people are very focused on ensuring that their property values are, you know, continue to stay high and it, it sort of warps their view of what is most important in their neighborhood. And then that can lead to them being involved in redlining, even if they don't, don't want to be involved in redlining, even if they are in, in complete opposition to redlining, they'll do, be doing the redlining themselves out of some idea that that's what's best for their housing value. You write of single family living. People hadn't always lived this way. The style of living centered around the single family home is a rel- relatively new concept in the history of humankind up until World War, War II. Families traditionally lived in more communal situations, ranging from multi-generational households to close-knit neighborhoods full of friends and family. 
How aware are we that this is not how we used to live? How aware are we that society went through an incredible change with neoliberalism, I guess, a, ch- a change that mar- that meant the end of the way children would be raised and how communities, neighborhoods function? In order for us to make America great again, do we have to return to more communal, collective living? Because I don't think that capitalists like Donald Trump will be happy about that. Um, well, I would say that the the shift towards the single family home it definitely predates neoliberalism. It is it's it's been a shift that's really been occurring over the past century, um, and I don't think that many people are aware. You know, you think of the American dream and the single family home and the white picket fence. These are sort of these ideals, and I think a lot of people think, well, this is the way that the United States has always been, um, but not really fully aware that actually, you know, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, people would, um, you know, families, first of all, would take in borders all the time. It was a very common um, phenomenon for families to kind of informally serve as boarding houses. And there were very professionalized boarding houses as well. People lived in Um, You know, especially young men moving to cities for professional reasons would live in kind of taverns and inns and kind of um, spaces where they would be renting out a room um, in a in a multi-use building. Um, You, you know, in the early um, in the late 1800s and and early 1900s, there were uh, apartment hotels that were. Um, even foreseen as kind of utopian housing options where you would have um, sort of all the benefits of a hotel in terms of communal dining spaces and, um, you know, a laundry service and whatnot, um, but you would also have your own private apartment. And this was seen as a way to build community, but also to ease the domestic um, burdens for women. Um, you know, there were there were eras of um, uh, housing that is almost modeled off of like an Israeli kibbutz where um, people would have daycare really built into the community. So there are all these various different types of housing styles, um, but really beginning in um, the period after World War One, um, there was kind of this uh, confluence of uh, of government-driven efforts to standardize housing, to make ch- housing um, more uh, affordable, and to get people out of kind of what were frankly overcrowded parts of cities into the suburbs, along with um, the automobile industry, very interested in getting people out into the suburbs and. Um, and, and and a real sort of combination of like a media campaign of um, around the the sort of moral superiority of owning your own home and living in a um, single family home over you know a a more crowded urban existence um, and certainly you know there were. Uh, a lot of concerns at that time. This was, you know, back right around the time of the last pandemic in 1918, um, and a lot of concern around people living in overcrowded, you know, urban situations. But um, it also masked kind of a, a, a an interest in uh, segregating people by class and race 
um, between cities and suburbs. And so, you know, it's it's been a very long history that we've had in this country of um, uh, moving towards the single family home. And it's been very supported, especially in the post-World War II period, by various different government incentives to encourage homeownership in the suburbs um, that, you know, has compounded with um, local zoning laws that require a sort of uniform housing type have really encouraged this as a, um, as a style of living in this country. And it wasn't the way that we, we always had lived. And, and frankly, um, it, it wasn't always seen as uh, beneficial. You know, in, in, uh, in the 1800s, living with your family, um, family members was actually seen as kind of a sign of economic mobility because you could pull the resources of your um, elders into your family unit. So um, that going on and on, we've had a long history of it, and I don't think many Americans are aware of it. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book is, is shed some light on that. Yeah, and it's a sort of fascinating history, and you were just saying you could go on and on about it. In your book, you do it, you uh, talk about it in detail in a very ex- excellent way. So I just wanted to thank you because it's a, it is a really great book. But are, are single-family homes, you were mentioning that this whole process started about 100 years ago, around the time of the pandemic. Uh, so are, are single-family homes good as a defense during a pandemic? You have a hope for or believe that there will be shared housing in our future. Does uh, the mm-hmm. pandemic mean that we're going to necessarily double down on that single family living? Is single family living good in fighting a pandemic? Well, we've seen right now, you know, when New York City was the epicenter of the pandemic, in the very beginning, everyone was saying, oh, the culprit here is density. What we're seeing now is that actually it's not that, that, you know, many rural states and rural areas are hit just as badly um, by this. So it's not really an issue of housing type um, or proximity to another person, um, you know, from one house to another. It's really a question of being able to um, enforce certain safety protocols and and following them strictly. Uh, th- that, I think, has, is really what contributes to safety um, in this pandemic. I do still think that we will end up seeing more types of communal and shared living. Certainly, multi-generational housing was on the rise before the pandemic. Um, I think in 2018, it had reached the highest levels since ni- the 1950s. Um, about 20% of the population living multi-generationally, and that's really driven by a number of trends that I just don't see um, turning, you know, turning around. Obviously, the economy being a huge driver, family members living together as a result of that, um, an increasingly diverse population. So, seeing um, Latino families and Black families having a higher rate of living multi-generationally. Um, and then, you know, sort of the aging of a population and just um, being able to take care of um, older family members really driving uh, that multi-generational growth. And so a lot of people have moved in with family members during the pandemic for um, a variety of reasons, sometimes to access daycare um, so that parents can continue to work and um, other family members can look after their kids when their schools aren't in session or even if they're doing virtual school. Um, 
So I can I see that continuing to grow, and I think that that will also give greater support to some of the housing types that I talk about in the book, like accessory dwelling units. So an accessory dwelling unit is anything that is, you know, what it sounds like, an accessory to the main house. So it could be an in-law suite, it could be a backyard cottage, and I think that a lot of people aren't even aware that to build, um, you know, a backyard cottage or to um, reconfigure your house into two units, it would most likely be um, illegal in the neighborhood that you're living in and that you need special zoning permissions to be able to do that. Um, or that if you wanted to build a new home in your neighborhood that you couldn't have, um, you know, a main house and an accessory dwelling unit so easily. Um, these, I think that we'll find that that multi-generational um, population is going to be very supportive of uh, housing options and enable, enable um, intergenerational living. Um, I also see that there's going to be an increase of people interested in co-living. So these would be spaces where you have uh, people having their own private room, but shared spaces all within a kind of clearly defined compound and some programming um, and you know events going on in that space. Um, that was increasingly popular pre-pandemic. I know that in places like New York and San Francisco, it's really cooled off, but continue to be a strong type of living, particularly for younger adults who don't want to live alone um, and want to have a sense of community in the places that they're living in. And again, as, if we continue to see affordability being a huge issue, finding new models of shared living for a range of um, income levels would be really important to our cities and not just kind of trying to build standalone single family homes to house um, each person because that's going to be so much harder for affordable housing. So I think that these kinds of communal housing types will continue after the pandemic. Um, and I think that they could f find their ways to be very important during the pandemic as people are trying to figure out, you know, how to have a pod that has enough people in it that feels like it's a community, but is also safe. That co-living exp uh, experiment, it makes me just think of the kinds of things that are being done in Europe with squatting and other parts around the world mm -hmm. where they're trying to come up with ways that they can come up with co-living just for a temporarily, uh, temporary point of time. Uh, we've been speaking, we are speaking with writer and urban policy specialist, Diana Lind, author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. You can find out more about Diana at dianalind.com and follow Diana on Twitter at Diana. M. Lind, you write how you found that the popularity of single-family living and home ownership writ large is only partly explained by choice, government incentives, zoning, media narratives, advertising, and the housing industry all play a role in making single-family homes the de facto housing type in the United States. Are single-family homes then is single-family living imposed upon us by the housing industry? And to what extent do we have a choice or the market even offers us a choice when it comes to single-family living? Because you mentioned the classist notions uh, toward uh, mobile homes and yet how people want mm -hmm. to have far less expensive homes, have, uh, not have to invest in so much in their homes. So to what degree are we even given a choice outside of single-family living? I think that there are very limited choices, I'll put it that way. Um, and, you know, and pretty much anyone who is interested in living outside of, say, a 2,500-square-foot house with a two-car garage um, in much of the country would find that it's 
very difficult to find um, something that is that's very different from that. So certainly, you know, if you do want to live in, say, a tiny home um, or in, um, you know, housing that's, say, you know, just 200 or 300 square feet because that's all the space that you want, need, or can afford, uh, in many communities you would not be able to, um, to build a home that small, to um, move a home that small to that location. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people run into that kind of problem on a personal level. From the development side, uh, you know, developers are very risk averse and are not going to be um, interested in developing housing that's outside of the, you know, so-called norms. Um, and until they see that there is, you know, a large enough market for this kind of housing and, um, and that it can be built without sort of, you know, regulations that are going to get into the way of actually being able to build it. And so as a result, what ends up getting built is the same stuff that's been built since the 1950s, despite the fact that, you know, our demographics have dramatically changed. People's lifestyles have dramatically changed um, in that time period. And so um, I think that what we have now as a result is a very limited style of housing um, even in urban areas, you know, of course, there are apartments that don't fit that kind of description that I mentioned of the house with the two-car garage. Um, but yet, even so, in places like in Philadelphia, where I am, um, the type of the majority of the new housing that's being built here are houses with garages, um, just because they know that that is what you know developers know that's what works with the zoning code and um, presumably that is what people want. And so part of the idea in the book was really to show that um, we have, you know, hundreds of millions of people who live in this country and enough of and a very diverse population that there are large enough segments of the population who are interested in living in different ways and need to live in different ways that there um, is the potential for um, for housing this type of people, you know, these various different types of people, and for um, kind of innovating on these old standard models. And so I think it's important that both the, um, that we look for ways to refine the types of zoning that we have in our um, areas, but also get the word out and, and sort of um, advocate for housing choices because I think that ultimately is going to enable you know the person who wants to live in the 200 square foot tiny home um, to be able to do that and I think it's you know it's it's really interesting um, you mentioned you know squatters in Europe in Philadelphia we've had a housing um, protest and homeless encampment uh, for several months here and the demands from the protesters were for tiny homes um, because that is what they saw as being the most sort of adaptable um, housing option for them. And, and seeing that that is truly the kind of affordable housing that is needed. And I think it's you know, super interesting that the protesters are the ones who are proposing this, not um, it, that's not the kind of um, idea that you would have found coming from, say, like the city government as a solution to begin with. 
And you write that the meaning of home evolved from something more akin to shelter to an idealized vision of family life and a status symbol of achievement. This transformation, in turn, changed how people thought of residential neighborhoods, the good life, and how to raise families. So is home a class project? Does the home enforce a certain class structure? Is the intent of the single-family home to keep lower-income people, people of color, out of certain neighborhoods? Are single-family homes themselves, on their own, a kind of redlining? It definitely correlates with redlining. I mean, it you know the it, historically redlining was a practice both by um, the government and by um, realtors and others in the housing industry to um, prevent uh, people of color from accessing housing, and that's certainly uh, in, in certain neighborhoods. And so that certainly has been you know part of the history of single family housing in the US. I do think that there will be, you know, people who are interested in kind of building narratives around whatever type of housing um, that, you know, they're interested in. But I do think that the the narrative around the single family home has been that this is a superior type of housing for a family and that, um, you know, for a very long time, you know, it's been conveyed in the media and, and in our housing policy itself that if you are not a homeowner, you're somehow less than, except for the fact that, you know, almost half of our population is not homeowners. And so, um, you know, really, I think that there is a way in which we need to think about how to encourage a broader sense of, you know, what home is rather than just it being a single family home and, um, and one that you own. Um, but that instead that if you are a renter, if you live in a co-living space, if you um, live with, you know, several of your relatives, these are all valid different types of housing. And I don't think that we have shared that message um, much you know, as much as we have that you know the single family home is somehow better than um, these other housing types. Because of its history, I'm always very skeptical of the motivations of the housing industry. And you write how individuals, companies, and governments are beginning to reflect a need for change in housing. What's old is new again. Reinterpretations of single-room occupancy buildings are popping up in cities in the form of both hip co-living communities and workforce housing for teachers and service professionals. Workforce housing. Now, there were stories long before the pandemic of San Francisco teachers, in particular, having to share apartments. That was the only way they could afford to live in the city on a teacher's salary. In light of charter schools and downward pressures on teacher salaries, and despite some recent teacher union success, the far more weak labor unions of today than, say, 40 or 100 years ago is uh, shows that the future for teachers, for public servants who are needed, but the public is unwilling to fund them, it shows that we need to make housing for them. Can shared housing justify lowered teachers' salaries or have any residual unintended negative effects? Can it legitimize low wages for essential workers in order just to, hey, all of a sudden we we gave them housing? Shouldn't they be happy now? Right, yeah. And I definitely think that that is a tension that I uh, was grappling with in the book. I, You know, certainly... a I've gotten feedback that 
um, everyone should be entitled to a single family home. Um, and, you know, how dare you say that people should live in shared housing because it's more economical or should live in a tiny home because it's more economical. Um, and so I think that there are different ways to look at this particular issue. Um, I don't see it as legitimizing uh, the you know, obscenely low wages that we pay for school teachers. I see these types of housing as um, enabling people to live in the type of housing that they, that they can afford um, and to giving security to people who would otherwise potentially be housing insecure. And I really do believe that by having more housing options um, and by creating, you know, enabling, say, accessory dwelling units in all of our cities, we could have many more housing units that would make housing more affordable for a variety of people. And so that might enable people, you know, through supply and demand and enable um, some of these housing costs to actually go down and people could afford a bit more space. But right now what you have are sort of people living in single family homes you know, occupying more space perhaps than they even need. And then you have other people who have very little space or no space at all that they can access. And there's sort of this mismatch there between, you know, what maybe a, the person with the 2,500 square feet would love to be able to carve out a separate um, 500 square foot studio within their home and could house that person who's not able to access any housing in their city. So I think that there's, it's important to think about these housing options as kind of helping to free up some of the supply and, and enabling um, lower housing costs overall that would hopefully lead to um, some better housing options for people. Um, and, you know, whether that's more space or more privacy, um, if those are the goals. And you also address another concern I have. You write that venture capital funds seeing an industry ripe for disruption are beginning to deploy more money toward housing innovation. Vigilance on the part of the government and media is necessary to ensure that these new ventures allow residents to share in the upside. How dangerous is that potential disruption for those who want smaller living in shared communities? How vulnerable are they for exploitation by venture capital disruptors? Well, I, I actually was thinking about how um, I think our, our, our single-family home communities actually are the ones that are most vulnerable right now. Um, so following the 2008 um, Great Recession, uh, major investors bought up tens of thousands of single-family home properties, which they then um, turned around into uh, rental units and have kind of withdrawn a significant amount of the housing um, from people actually being able to, you know, rent or own themselves and sort of have become, you know, developing sort of monopolies in certain markets um, for the rental housing in those areas. So I think that that is really, um, really bad. And I think that there's the potential for that happening again um, with this current um, economic disruption that we're witnessing. And so, I do think it's important that we have um, a variety of people, you know, not just a few major landlords owning housing um, in our cities, whether that is, and, and 
so that goes for, for example, you know, ensuring that there's not just one big company that is the co-living operator for the country or something like that, but that there are a lot of various different players in that space. Um, and so I think that that's really important that we safeguard against this. And we have, I think, you know, people have so many governments have so many different um, threats out there that they are focused on and trying to figure out how to address um, the affordability crisis for different people, but have not really looked at this as being um, a huge issue in terms of disrupting the supply of housing that people can actually access themselves. You write micro apartments and tiny houses are also attractive to the 28% of the population living alone who are often looking for inexpensive, manageable housing options. More and more developers are creating micro apartment buildings and tiny home communities for workforce housing, teachers, service industry workers, even tech workers. So to what degree do you believe people are compelled, pulled toward this kind of housing? And to what extent do you think they are pushed that they have no choice in today's brave new world of home? Um, well, I I haven't read a ton about, you know, workforce housing being something that people are um, being pushed into, and I haven't heard that sort of in my reporting or anecdotally. What I have heard are people who, you know, want to work at a school or for a certain employer and not able to do it uh, in terms of the cost of, you know, living nearby. Uh, and so otherwise, they would have to either choose to have a, you know, an unbearable commute, or uh, have the option of uh, living closer by in housing that has been created either by their employer or by other developers who have recognized that there's, you know, a need for that type of housing near these um, employers. So I think that there's the potential for uh, it being a, a good solution in that there isn't much housing that is specifically targeted to employees at a certain price level. And that if we have, you know, more housing that is say below market rate um, and uh, lower cost in general, that would be a good thing. Um, I think that there have been, you know, a number of communities that have been successful in targeting say teachers could be artists, specific communities and, um, recognizing that they're, you know, working within financial constraints and, and creating housing that's at a lower price point for them. So I'm in favor, again, of more housing options um, and certainly in favor of people being able to access housing near where they work. Um, I haven't heard too much about it being something that people are getting pushed into, but I do think that, of course, you know, there's this tension there of if you're not able to access um, you know, quality housing, should you accept lower quality housing at all um, or push harder and advocate more for better, higher quality housing? And I think that, um, unfortunately, it's a little of a situation where I feel like you kind of need to do both. One last question for you, for you, Diana. We have been speaking with writer and urban policy specialist Diana Lind, author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. You can find out more about Diana at dianalind.com, and you can follow Diana on Twitter at Diana M. 
Lind. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, Diana, I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write of the need to examine the ways that our government, as well as the media and private sector, can take this momentum of alternative housing forward. When it comes to the media, do you think shared living will have detractors from the far right who see it as socialist, a form of collectivism, if not Stalinist communism? Is shared living, Diana, a socialist plot? (laughs) Um, I don't think it is. Definitely not. Um, And I, you know, I, I do think it's the antithesis of that, you know, Trump quote, suburban lifestyle dream. Um, It's a different lifestyle dream for people. And I don't think it's one that is just for socialists. I think it could be for really anyone. And in fact, you know, if you are familiar with um, co-living, there are, there's just, you know, there's certainly a, a key demographic of young people who are interested in it, but communal living really appeals to empty nesters, people who are get, you know, going through a divorce, people who are moving to a different city, it, it, it really ranges. And so um, the key here is making these housing options open to all different types of people. Um, and I definitely don't think that anyone's plot um, would be, you know, to use communal living to, to advocate for anything uh, politically, I think really it's more of a it's a personal solution for getting people to uh, live happier lives. Diana, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, you can find out more about Diana at dianalind.com. And the title of her book is Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Thanks so much for being on This Is Hell. Thank you so much for having me. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but you have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth we will be announcing this week's winner as we do most weeks just how our listeners answering this week's question from hell jeremy t says by showing them my psoriasis and telling them lizard people are real and we're going to take over the mammalian world <laughs> sweet P.S. The vote blue no matter whose sign is on point. <laughs> uh, Nick A. says, by noping the nope nope on the no thank you very much nope wagon. <laughs> um, Ed F. says, by telling them I'm voting libertarian. <laughs> Chris A. Um, Mitch McConnell's hand. Ed- <laughs> <laughs> that is a gross picture. <laughs> um, Edward I. Um, by continuing to not get a haircut. Nice. Um, Nathan R., um, by dre- dressing up as Mitch McConnell from Pan's Labyrinth. Sweet. Uh, David J., I would just cough. And Chase C., by spiking their candy with class consciousness. <laughs> so if you want to answer this week's question, Mel, all you have to do is go to our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Again, this week's question from hell is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Make sure that you get your responses into us by the end of the show Thursday when we will be announcing this week's winner. 
Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow we've got uh, Brett Gustafson um, promoting his book, uh, Bolivia in the Age of Gas. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show uh, podcast, live stream host, whatever, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess with Alex's help. And we also want to thank Diane Lind for being our guest today. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>